Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. We've been going through the book of Job for a few months now. Our first sermon was back in February. We broke for the Easter season, but we've really been in this book for a long time. Maybe you're ready to be done with it and back into something a bit more positive. But there have been some positive moments, I think, and I hope your soul has been refreshed. Or maybe there's been some healing or affirmation. For all of us, I hope we feel prepared for the next trial we face. And the next time your faith is tested, the book of Job will mean more to you than perhaps it did before. All Christians are tested. It's a phase you'll have to go through. And you may, you may even have more than one trial to go through in your life. Just remember, Job proves that there was at least one man in the history of faith that loved God with a strong, stubborn, courageous faith and wouldn't walk away from God when times got hard, so we can too. And it wasn't because he was being punished, but he never really knew why it all happened. He knew that it wasn't random, that God was at the center of it all, and that he learned something through the trial that he couldn't have learned otherwise. And then one day it was over. And that's the hard thing about some tragedies, that sometimes they are just over as fast as they came upon you. Or maybe it was something that you dealt with for decades, and then suddenly it was just sort of gone. In our church's network, there's a pastor who has ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. We hope for healing, but if that doesn't happen, he'll eventually go on to be with the Lord. And his wife is the one that I think about, that I'm thinking about in this context. She's healthy. And she's been taking care of him for many, many years. And then one day, either after he's healed or after he passes, her life will radically change. It'll just be over. The amount of physical and emotional energy that she uses right now just to get through each and every day will suddenly not be needed anymore. She'll wake up one day and not need to do all the things that she's been doing for so long. She'll even have free time. She'll have a Sabbath for the first time in years. She'll have joy if he's healed and grief if he isn't, which is a new kind of trial. But she'll possibly not know what to do with herself for a while. She'll be able to travel with ease for the first time in so many years. So many problems will just go away. And others will come, but so many will go away. It'll just be over. Sometimes people even start to feel guilty for being so happy that such a trial is over. For Job, in a way, it was never over. He still visited the graves of the children and servants he lost. There were still anniversaries each year that he had to live through. There were probably scars on his body from where he lanced his boils. There was probably an emotional fatigue that he carried for at least a long time, if not his whole life. But after his tragedies happened... And after his contentious debates with his friends, and after he had his dramatic meeting face-to-face with God, it was over. And chapter 42 is how things sort of shook out at the end. Let's read the last half of chapter 42, and then we'll talk about it. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we love you that there's an ending day. We thank you that there's an ending date on all suffering. And Lord, please help us to process through and think about and uh, learn how to understand eventually the, the suffering that we go through. We thank you for your word and what it's about to teach us. Holy Spirit, please be our teacher today as we read your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Job chapter 42, starting in verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his friends and brothers and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died, an old man and full of years. The first thing that happened after it was all over was worship. God convicted Job's friends of their wrong theology and their wrong attitude toward Job. You'll notice that Elihu the youth was not caught up in this part, nor was Job's wife. But Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were brought front and center, and God unloaded on them. I'm not going to forgive you. I can't forgive you. I'll only forgive you if you bring two sets of seven sacrifices to Job and let Job offer them for you. Not pigeon offerings either. No, it's bulls and rams. And even though you accuse Job of great sin, I'm going to vindicate him in front of you by showing you that he's the only holy priest who can offer these sacrifices for you. That's what you should see there. They'd accuse Job of being a sinner, and God says, No. In fact, he's the only one who can act as a priest for you. So Job has a decision to make. Will he do this for them or not? Remember what Jesus said, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose from earth will be loosed from heaven. Jesus' words in there in that passage make it sound like we can decide who goes to heaven and who can't. And I don't think that's true, but I don't really know uh, how to interpret those verses any other way. But it sounds like we have the power to forgive with God's forgiveness and even withhold God's forgiveness. Again, I don't think that that's ultimately true. We aren't the judges, but God seems to give us a part in other people's redemption. And Job can either take part or not. And he does. And I'm glad he does. I would hope that I would never withhold the gospel message from somebody so that they couldn't be saved. I would also hope that nobody ever withholds forgiveness from me. Job shows the gracious forgiveness that God hopes all believers will extend to people. Job had reason to resent his friends, but he didn't resent them so badly that he would let them remain God-forsaken. After tragedies, when feelings are hurt because people either say things they really do mean or say things they really don't mean, then there is a need for reconciliation. 
These three friends weren't at the heart of Job's tragedy. They didn't steal his possessions. They didn't kill his children. They didn't afflict him with boils either, but they didn't offer what Job really needed. He didn't need answers. He needed comfort, and they didn't give it. They poured salt all over his wounds and body and soul, and Job is now pouring coals on their heads, giving them grace when they deserve none by forgiving and acting as a priest on their behalf. He was giving them something that they didn't give him. They maintained Job's guilt and their moral superiority, but now Job is the one who's in the in the position to offer atonement for their sin, which they thought they had none. And this might have, might have sort of been the last test. How would Job respond to those who had kicked him while he was down? Job passed by offering this forgiveness and grace. And Job... God rewarded Job for passing the test. Now, please don't believe that this is a promise of tangible blessings for righteousness. That's not how it always works. Job was wealthy before, and now God is restoring everything to him, and he'll end up being double blessed. Remember in the Old Testament, tangible blessings are part of the covenant on earth, but there's uncertainty in the afterlife. In the New Testament, it's the opposite, yet it's even better. We're given spiritual blessings here on earth, meaning the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but there's also uncertainty in this life. However, we are blessed because we have been promised all tangible blessings in the afterlife where moth and rust don't destroy. If given the choice between Job's blessings and the blessings under the new covenant, always choose the new covenant. The presence of the Holy Spirit in your life now is worth far more than all the livestock in the world then. And Job's reputation was restored. His family, who didn't show up during the test, now come to celebrate his joy at the restoration of his life. This is how I see it playing out. After the test is over and after the sacrifices have been given and worship takes place, a sort of welcome back party is held. Maybe it included a wake and a funeral for his deceased children. All the friends gather around to hear the testimony of what God did and said. Job and his friends and his wife testified as to what they had learned. Then someone suggested that Job be paid back in kindness for all the kindness he had shown to his people. Family and villagers around him had all benefited from Job in previous years. They lived by taking part in the economy that Job had created in that region. Remember how wealthy he was, and it wasn't ill-gotten gains. He was a righteous man. So they all gave him an offering and a gift so that the one who had blessed them all these years wouldn't go without. That offering became seed money that God would bless. The rains come, the locusts stay away, and the sun shines. And in the middle of all that, the four servants Job has left come to him and say, Master, the, the fields are ready to plant if you can provide the seed. And that offering then became a bumper crop. And the servants said, With all this grain, we'll have enough to buy a few head of livestock. And then those livestock have twins every time they give birth. And the bumper crops every year mean all the fields are expanded to their former size with all those donkeys and oxen to plow. And then that prosperity is given the bonus of flocks and herds that are healthy and reproducing too. And in the middle of that, Job's wife come to him, comes to him and says, I think we're going to be parents again. Job's wife isn't mentioned in chapter 42. We aren't told it's a different wife, though. Remember, in the beginning, God didn't curse her for his foolishness. Job did. But it never says that Job divorced her or she died or anything. So we can only assume it's the same woman. 
Her only punishment is that she'll have given birth 20 times in her life, and that's probably enough. I'm sure she had osteoporosis in the end. And I want to talk about Job's second set of children. I hope nobody feels like God thinks that one child can replace another. We all know that's not true. These second set of ten children do not replace the first set. If, if so, maybe God would have given him twenty children the second time instead of ten the first time. That's what he did with all the livestock. But he just gives them the same number, ten, the next time. If you've ever lost a child and then had another, you know that the one who survived doesn't make up for the one you lost. You want that one too. But I'll also say this as a matter of application. Don't let the loss of the life of one child rob you of the joy of the rest of your children who are still around you. Let them bring you joy, maybe twice as much joy. And if you're a child who has lost a sibling, please do what you can to honor their memory and know that your parent carries a scar just like you do. And please, no pressure, but try to bring a little more joy to your parent. No, I don't think Job forgot his first ten children. I think his second set of ten children went with him to the cemetery every year to mourn the siblings they never knew. But I think Job also smiled on the days when his second set of ten children were born. He still felt joy when they came crying into this world. And remember, there's something theological going on here, too, that was true for Job, but not really true for us. Children were a kind of afterlife for you in Job's theology. Having no children meant that your name was blotted out of history. When Job lost his first household, his name was in danger of being forgotten from history, a true tragedy. But now his household and his name are restored by the birth of children. And remember, Job had an idyllic existence before, and God is giving it back to him. His family of seven sons and three daughters was idyllic, and now he has that back again. What's more, remember how Job's daughters were equal with his sons and came to the banquets with them at the beginning of the book? Well, it's the same thing here. These three daughters were beautiful, but also of equal status with the sons. They're even named Very seldom are daughters named in the Old Testament, so these three girls are of very high prominence. They're also given a share of the inheritance, and that only happens one other place in the the Old Testament. Let Let me remind you of how Old Testament inheritance works. When a man dies, his estate is divided up into one more part than he has sons. So, for example, Jacob had 12 sons, so his estate was divided up into 13 sections. Why? Because the oldest, Reuben, was entitled to a double portion. So he got two-thirteenths of the estate, and the other brothers got one-thirteenth. His daughter died and I got nothing. Daughters are meant to marry well and go off and enjoy the inheritance of a son from another prominent family. But in Job's family, it's different. There's no family around with prominent sons or rich enough sons to marry these girls and be of equal or higher status. So these girls are given an inheritance along with their brothers, and potential suitors line up to take these girls' last names uh, and become part of Job's clan. It's the men. These guys are going to marry up instead of the girls trying to marry up. That's the kind of women these are. There's no man around that's good enough for them, so they're just going to have to find themselves a nice trophy husband uh, and be happy with them. And these are the meanings of their names. If it gives their names and doesn't give the names of the sons, then that means it's important uh, to see uh, what the daughters are named because there's a lesson in it. And remember, it says 
these these girls were beautiful and they were highly desirable. They're they're everything you ever wanted out of your daughters. Okay, so these are the meanings of their names. Jemima. Jemima means turtle dove. Nice, gentle, cooing turtle dove. Also a a sacrifice animal, so it's kind of a holy animal. That's very good. Keziah, cassia wood, and that's bark. Uh, the cassia wood, you know, it's it's a bark that's used for incense, used in worship. So we have a a very demure daughter. We have another daughter who uh, her name is synonymous with worship. And then we have Karen Hapak. And Karen Hapak, that's a strange name. Uh, what it means is horn of coal, K-O-H-L for coal. Now what is that? Coal, K-O-H-L, is a is a charcoal type substance. And what it really is, is an ancient kind of mascara. Uh, but it's still used today. I, and if you look at you know, sort of reliefs on the walls of Egyptian tombs, something like that. You'll see that the ancient Egyptians, they had these very striking eyes with, with a black uh, eye shadow around them. That is coal. And so what what this really all does, okay, so he named his, his third daughter Mascara. That's, a, that's very interesting. But each of these girls' names highlight their femininity, their beauty, and even their holiness. Today, girls are still often kind of named things along those lines. Uh, Rose. Rose is a beautiful name. It you know it's, it symbolizes beauty. Robin, which is a bird, uh, you know we name Jemima is named after a bird. Robin is is a good uh, bird name for for a girl, and, and everybody loves robins. Um, but we also name girls Pearl or even Angel, and it, it symbolizes how beautiful, how precious, how wonderful, and even how holy they are. And then Job lived. Another 140 years afterward. This age, if literal, shows God's amazing blessing on his life. If symbolic, it shows his great legacy. To me, the symbolism of the number is most significant. You'll notice that it's two times 70 years. Uh, In the law of Moses, 70 years is the age promised to anyone who honors his father and mother. Seventy years is a good old age. It's the age anyone would hope to get to. In most of the world today, that's still a good old age. In the U.S. and Japan, it's a little bit early to die, but in most of the world, that's a good old age. I don't know. How old do you want to be? 75, 80, 90, and be able to see your children and grandchildren. That's what most people would say. I want to be old enough to see my children grow up, see my grandchildren grow up, maybe even see some great-grandchildren. In the Bible, 70 years is the age that shows you honored God, and getting to see your children's children is good to see too. How much did God, uh, how much did Job honor God in heaven? Twice as much as anyone else, and that was after the test was over. Death is the enemy, death is feared, but Job beat death as much as anyone else around him ever had. He was satisfied with what life uh, had given him in the end. Even though he'd gone through the tragedy of losing his children, he was still able to see his children, his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren give birth. Only Susan Dickey's mother has seen as many generations as Job. She has great-great-grandchildren. So what can I say? That's the story of Job. I think if you asked Job 40 years before he died, when the events of the great trial were 100 years in the past, Job would say two things. He'd say he still remembers it all very clearly. He remembers the personality of each child he lost. 
He remembers hearing the news of the tragedies one after the other like five punches to the heart. He remembers the servants he lost. He remembers the livestock he lost. He remembers how it felt to scrape his wounds. He remembers the emptiness and the pain of feeling God's hand against him. He remembers the anger and confusion he felt while he disputed with his friends. But I think he'd also say, My worship and my life walking with God has meant more to me since then. I think he'd say, I still don't understand it fully, but I understand enough. And I know that when my children, grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, and my great-great-grandchildren sit at my feet and I tell them what God is like and what it means to serve and walk with God all of our lives, I know that I'm giving them a better answer now than I could have before the great trial. So for that reason, maybe it was worth it. And for us, as we go through the greatest trials in our lives, I hope we all experience a time when it is more or less over. Though I know some trials never seem to be over, but I I hope we all have some time to sit and think through and understand God more fully after a trial. And I hope that we all come to a place where we can talk about it with our children, grandchildren, or people in the church. It's important to know what the most difficult thing your parents or grandparents ever faced was. It helps you know why they were the way they were. When I was in college, I learned from a minister who knew my grandfather that my grandfather had been engaged to be married before my grandmother, before he married my grandmother, and that that fiancé was brutally murdered in 1935. I was shocked to hear that. I asked my dad about it, and he said he knew about it, but only because a woman in town had told him when he was a kid. My cousins knew about it, and they had even seen her grave. A few years before he died, he talked to me about it. It meant a lot to hear it from him. He didn't understand it at the time, but it led him, led to him walking closer with the Lord, maybe even his conversion. You see, he had the desire and opportunity to kill that man. Uh, he had the desire and the opportunity to kill that man that did it. And he also had a more, had a more or less reassurance from the sheriff that he wouldn't be arrested. But the Holy Spirit told him not to in that moment because it wouldn't solve anything. And my grandfather obeyed the Lord and even offered forgiveness to the man right there near her body. I can't imagine what it would have been like if he had killed that guy. My grandfather was a very gentle man. I can't imagine him being turned into a killer, even if it was justifiable in the eyes of the people of the town, even the sheriff. It would have changed him into someone I know he wouldn't want to be. He ended up being a minister. He ended up showing grace and mercy. And he ended up preaching a life-giving message instead of being a life-taker. One of these days, a hundred years after our lives are over, when we're sitting with the Lord, we'll have a better understanding of everything that has ever happened to us in our lives. We'll have a wisdom we couldn't have had before. And we'll be able to talk about it with full knowledge and wisdom. I look forward to that day, but I'll only have it if I keep walking with God. Don't walk away from Him. Let Him do the work of transformation in your life. That transformation may require some trial and some tragedy, but you or I will never be who Jesus wants us to be without it. So when the tests come, when the trials come, all we really need to do is hold fast to God. The answers and the wisdom will come eventually. The character of faith and trust is the ultimate quality God wants to produce in us. Let's let him do it.
Heavenly Father, please bless us. Help us to look with hindsight, your perfect hindsight, back at the trials that we go through. Help us to process them correctly. Help us to pass on the lessons learned to other people. Help us to be faithful children walking with you in all things. Help us to keep the faith even in the most difficult of times. Be our teacher. And help us to remember that no matter what we don't understand now, someday we will have full understanding. And we will love you and worship you and appreciate you more because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.